Uh, if you didn't watch the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, how many of you saw a clip of the wedding on the news or on TV sometime in the week or the month? So pretty much all of us. And if you hadn't seen it on TV, maybe uh, you don't have TV, you would have seen definitely a magazine or a newspaper article or something about it. The world was talking about these two, uh, about their wedding. And there was a bit of royal fever, not just in Britain, but all across the Commonwealth, and not just the Commonwealth. It was amazing to me how many American stations were enthralled by this wedding. Why? If you watch the wedding, or if you are at all caught up in this royal fever, why? What, what is the reason that the world was captivated by Prince Harry? He's not even the crown prince. And Meghan Markle, a former actress, now princess. Why does the world care so much about royalty? I'll give you a few possibilities. One possibility is, well, we saw the developing right before our very eyes a fairy tale come true. Meghan Markle, she's an American. Uh, she was living in Toronto. She was an actress. Uh, she, there was no way that she had any inkling for most of her life that she would marry into the royal family and become a princess. So this just taps into these uh, Disney uh, princess uh, longings that so many people have. And they say, this is a fairy tale that, that we get to watch and we want to be somehow, no, no matter how remote or how distant, we want to be a part of it. So that's one possibility. It taps into that love of fairy tale in all of us. Another, perhaps a little bit more crass than this, but related, is it could have just been the love of celebrity. It might be that we just live in a world that loves to celebrate celebrities. And some people are just famous for being famous. And, and so we're just caught up in the lives of the rich and the famous. Could be. And it probably is a little bit of the first, a little bit of the second. But I want to suggest to you this morning that in addition to those first two reasons, uh, the reason that the world was so captivated by these young royals is that we are born, we're created to love royalty. God has made us to have a heart that beats for the king. He, he, he's made us to be enthralled with this idea of a king and the king's family. And that Harry and Meghan are just the latest installment of something, a shadow of something that is actually real. Uh, and so when we, when we see uh, Prince Harry and his bride, there's something, even if we can't articulate it, even in the most pagan of person that understands that one day the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is going to return and he's going to gather for himself his bride and his bride is the church. And we're going to be caught up in the consummation of the ages in the royal feast of the Lamb. Today I want to talk to you about your royal story. Our royal story. The real royal family is not Elizabeth. It's not Charles. It's not William. It's not Harry. It's not Meghan. It's, not, it's none of them. They're not the real thing. Oh, they're real enough in today's political atmosphere. They're real enough in Britain and in the Commonwealth. Queen Elizabeth is our queen. But she, as our queen, will one day, even though she today bows to no one, she is the sovereign over all her dominion, and she will bow to no one, swear allegiance to no one. But one day, she herself 
will bow the knee and confess loyalty to the sovereign of the ages, King Jesus. So I want to talk about him. And, and as a church, if we find that we can get swept up in the British royal family and the Canadian royal family, I hope, and it's my prayer, that we would fall in love and be entranced with the real royal family, which is us, in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you've given us shadows of royalty all around the world. And the best example for us in Canada and, and for many in the world is Queen Elizabeth II and her empire and her children and grandchildren. And we've seen evidence of this just recently with the wedding of Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan. I pray, Lord, as we take a look at... Uh, the life of David and the line of David, which comes to fruition in Jesus Christ, our King, that you would give us that same excitement. In fact, more for the true King of the universe. I pray that you would glorify yourself. Help us to look beyond uh, the images of kings and queens that we see and, and help us to, to grasp that Jesus is our king, not abstractly, not the theoretically, but actually and truly. And that even as he reigns in us and reigns in the church, one day he will return to reign over all the nations. Glorify yourself and build up your church. The name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8, if we're going to talk about the kingship of Jesus, his, sto his story, his kingship has a backstory, And that's what we've been looking at over these last couple of months. We've been looking at the Torah and all that God did from the time that Adam and Eve sinned all, and how that set a foundation for us for understanding the gospel. And then we're looking at the former prophets. One of the great contributions that the former prophets, that's Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings, one of the great contributions that these books make to the gospel is they establish the kingship of Jesus Christ. Not an abstract, he reigns in our hearts kind of kingship, but a real true king that reigns over a political system, over territory of land, over real people in time and space. And Jesus is the successor to this kingdom, and he will return, not to reign over a, a little bit of land in the Middle East, but to reign over the whole world. And not just this planet, but all planets, all uh, solar systems and galaxies. He is the king of the universe, and he will return to reign as king. Well, that rule, that reign, has a backstory. You might want to trace the beginning of that backstory to this chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 8. So I'm going to read this for us. This is where Israel asks for a king. Would you please stand? Open Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is the Word of God. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes 
and they perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him, and he said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards, and he'll give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards, and he'll give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants, and the best of your young men and your donkeys, and he'll put, they will, he'll put them to his work. He'll take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. These are the words of God. Please be seated. Was it right or was it wrong for Israel to ask for a king? This is a tricky question. Was it right or was it wrong for Israel to ask for a king? Now, this is a really excellent example of why it's important that we read the Bible broadly. Because if, to answer the question that I've just posed to you, you rely solely on this chapter, how might you respond? Probably you would say, no, it was wrong. For example, on the one hand, let's take another look at verses 6 to 8. So they asked for a king. The thing displeased Samuel. What do we know about Samuel? Well, we know he is a prophet of the Lord, so we're inclined to trust 
Samuel's inclinations. We're, we're, we're inclined to say, well, if it displeased Samuel, it must have displeased the Lord. Whether or not that's true or not requires a more careful reading of the text. What made Samuel so upset? Well, it was when they said, give us a king to judge us. Samuel took the thing to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they've rejected me from being king over them. Okay, if we, if we stop there, how do you answer the question? Was it right or was it wrong for Israel to ask for a king? It was wrong. That's exactly how it feels if you just read this text. On the other hand, if you keep going, verse 8 is really important. Uh, you know when we have politicians or celebrities and, and you hear something that they said and if, if that quote gets plucked out of the, the broader context, we may misunderstand what was meant. But look at what God continues to say. Look, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me from being king over them. When did the people reject God from being their king? Was it in asking for a king? Not according to verse 8. They rejected me as their king according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So also now they are doing to you. So God says, look, Samuel, you, you, you're feeling pretty low because here you're a judge. You're not even the king. You're a judge over these people and they want a king. They don't want your sons to judge them the way that you had planned and you're upset about that. Well, how do you think I feel? Ever since I delivered this people as their king, they've been rejecting me. What God is not saying here, and we have to see it before I take us even further afield in the biblical witness, what God is not saying in verse 7 is that in asking for a king, the people are necessarily rejecting God as their king. He is saying the people long ago have rejected me from being their king, long before they ever asked you for a king, long before they ever rejected your sons, they have rejected me ever since the Passover. They've rejected me as their king. Now, let's go further afield. How are we going to answer this question? Was it right or was it wrong for Israel to ask for a king? We're going to answer this by taking a look at the full biblical witness in the Torah and in the former prophets. So, maybe you want to jot down where I go. I'm going to go fairly quickly. You may try to keep up. Open Bibles would be good. Uh, but if you, if you find that I'm three ahead, just... Cut your losses and catch up. So let's start back in Genesis 17. We're going way back to the beginning. Remember in Genesis 12, God said this, this is not going to work. If, if the people need to be good enough to earn their own salvation, they will never save themselves because no one can be good enough. So God made a set of unconditional promises with Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to save a, a, a people for myself, and I'm going to do it through you and your family. This is going to be done no matter what. No matter your sin, no matter your son's sin, no matter your grandson's sin, and every generation after, no matter your sin, I'm going to save for myself a people. That was just five chapters before what we're going to read. Now we get to Genesis 17. You'll see verse 6. I'm going to read from 3 to 8 just to give us a little extra uh, 
a little extra context. So Abraham is 99 years old. He's still waiting for this son through whom these promises of blessing and salvation are going to come. Verse 3 of Genesis 17. Then Abram fell on his face, saying, God, come on. You keep promising me these things. I'm almost 100 years old. Where's this son through whom the nations will be blessed? God said to him, verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Here it is, verse 6. This is that right at the beginning where God is planting the seeds of what he's going to do. Verse 6. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. That's a promise. Kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then he goes on and says, I'm going to give your offspring land. Kings, though, notice that. That's, that's right at the, the, the foundation of God's plan of salvation, right when he's trying to lay this whole thing out to Abraham. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to bring kings into the world through you through your offspring. And he makes the exact same promise to Sarah, Abram's wife. Just go down to verse 15. And God said to Abram, as for Sarai, Sarai means princess, as for princess, Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, which means princess, shall be her name. Do you think God is trying to make a point? I want you to change the name of your wife from princess to princess. Why? Because She's going to be the mother of a great king. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. This is new information for Abram. He's been trying to gather to himself an heir. He takes Lot. He takes Eliezer. He takes Hagar for Ishmael. Finally, God says, no, no, no. This promise is not through any of them. It's going to come through Sarah, princess, your wife, who I want you to rename Sarai, princess, Look at this. I'm going to bless her just like I blessed you. And she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. God's very clear. His plan, A, is for kings who will lead to the king to come into the world. And if, if we're not convinced there, just flip to the end of Genesis to Genesis 49. At the end of Jacob's life, this is Abraham's grandson, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's going to bless his sons, 12 sons, and his two grandsons. He gets to his fourth-born son, Judah. I'm not going to read all of it, but look at Genesis 49, verses 9 to 10. Judah is a lion's cub. This is a metaphor for kingship. The lion has always been the king of the beasts. Judah is, is a prince of a son. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lion, as who dares rouse him? The scepter, the scepter is the symbol for a king. The scepter, the kingship, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. 
and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, plural, the nations. Uh, Filled with the Holy Spirit, Jacob looks at his fourth-born son Judah, and he says, from you is going to come a king. And this king is not just going to be the king of our family or the king of our people, but he's going to be the king of nations. He's going to be the king of peoples. It's really important. Flip to Numbers 24. Not only was Jacob filled with the Holy Spirit, but you'll remember two weeks ago we talked about when Israel was walking around in the wilderness in the book of Numbers. And Balak, the king of Moab, was afraid of these two million people, about 600,000 men who were able to fight in war. And the king of Moab was scared, so he got a man who he knew was able to call the demonic world to his, do his bidding, and he wanted this man, Balaam, to curse God's people to curse Moses and the the wandering Israelites in the wilderness. And Balaam wanted to, but every time Balaam went to curse these people, the Holy Spirit prevented him, and out of his mouth instead came blessing. Now the very fourth of these four curses turned blessings is the climactic one, and what we're going to see here is the blessing of a king. This is what Balaam says in Numbers 24, verses 17 to 19. I see him. See who? I don't see him now, but I behold him. Who? You'll see. But he's not near. That is, what Balaam says, it's filled with the Holy Spirit, is that there's there's one coming. He's not down there in the camp. But I see him spiritually in, in a far off distance down the road. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. I see a king. And this king shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. This is a prophecy of a king coming from Israel who will be the king of all nations. They're not even in the land yet. Flip now to Deuteronomy 17. I hope you see what I'm doing. I'm building a biblical case that the request for a king was a good one. It may not have been a perfect. All of their desires may not have been perfect. But, but they're right on track with God's plan which then raises some questions about 1 Samuel 8 and Samuel and all sorts of other things. But what I'm trying to do is, when you're reading the Bible, it's very dangerous to pluck a chapter. It's even worse to pluck a verse or a part of a verse and try to answer big questions with a limited scope of biblical text. Take a look at Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to the end of the chapter. Now this is the slam dunk. I, I could have just gone here. Uh, these other ones are, are helpful, but this is the one that, that is absolutely crucial. If you're going to read 1 Samuel 8, you have to read it with Deuteronomy 17 in mind. Remember, the, the, the author of the former prophets, he gathered together all these scrolls. He went into Babylon. He's trying to explain to the people while, why they're sitting in exile. And I think when he's writing 1 Samuel 8, this is what I, uh, this is what I picture. 
he's got Deuteronomy 17. He's got that scroll. He's got it open. It's right before him. So, you know, if he was using a computer, he'd have two windows open. One is Deuteronomy 17, and then he's going to write 1 Samuel 8. He's got Deuteronomy 17. This text that I'm about to read you is open when he's writing 1 Samuel 8. This is what it says. This is Moses giving a sermon to the people right before they go into the land. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Pause there. Good request, bad request. Were they right or were they wrong? Well, Moses is going to answer it right here. When you say that, now if that was a bad request, Moses is going to say, that is sinful, you should repent. If it was a bad request. That's all he says. Verse 15. You may indeed set a king over you. Good request. Whom the Lord your God will choose. Now what we're going to read from here on out is this is the kind of man you choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. I think this was a big problem with their request. They wanted a king like all the nations who could go out before them into battle. And this is probably where they were wrong. They should have trusted in the strength of God for their protection and their security in the land. But the request for a king, as we see, is a good one. Continuing on in verse 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." This is the mishpat of the king, these verses. That's just a word that means the justice of the king or the way of the king. Now just flip back with me for a moment to 1 Samuel 8, verse 9. Now then, they're they're not rejecting you. They've rejected me long ago. Now therefore, obey their voice. Give them a king only. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the mishpat of the king, the ways of the king who shall reign over them. What is God saying to Samuel in verse 9? Well, in that whole section, this, if I could paraphrase what God is saying to Samuel, Samuel, get over yourself. You're not that big a deal. You're a judge that I have raised up for a season. Your season is coming to an end. I told Moses long ago, as I promised to Abraham, as I uh, promised through Jacob, as I blessed through Balaam, that it is my good intention to give this people a king in the land. Obey their voice. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as they have for centuries. Now, when you go about Giving them a king, what I want you to do is teach them the ways of the king. In other words, 
teach them Deuteronomy 17, 14, and following. Before they get a king, I want you to educate them about what kind of a king they should be looking for. And then I want you to train the king to know what kind of a king he ought to be. That's how I read this. If you haven't read verses 10 through 18, that to me is a contextual reading of what God is saying to Samuel. But then Samuel gets up, and what does Samuel say? Oh, Samuel told him all the words that the Lord, uh, of the Lord to the people. What were all of those words? The Lord has told me that I have to put a king over you. And he wants me to tell you the ways of the king. So far, so good. Now Samuel should have rolled open Deuteronomy 17 and read it. Instead, what does Samuel do? He goes on a personal rant. You want a king? You think kings are so good? You think that they're going to be better than me in my house? You think they're going to be better than my sons? This is what the kings are going to do to you. And then he goes on a personal rant and he's angry. And what we make the mistake of doing is taking Samuel's words and we make them into God's words. These are not God's words. What Samuel says here, though there's elements of prophetic truth in them, this is coming from a heart of bitterness that he's been rejected. This is what God warned him about. Just to show you that that I have more textual evidence for this, look at chapter 8, verse 1. Samuel had become old. He had made his sons judges over Israel. Not even Gideon did that in the book of Judges. This inherited judgeship. Samuel is king in everything but title. He's acting like a king. He's even making his authority over the tribes inherited. And what the narrator says is that his sons were wicked. Samuel was doing something wrong. Here, Samuel wants his sons to become his successors. And he made them judges in Beersheba. But his sons were wicked men. They took bribes and perverted justice. And so I read 1 Samuel 8 as now is the time that the Holy Spirit moves rightly in the elders of Israel. Then all of the elders of Israel gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah and said, Look, you're old. Your sons are wicked. We need, it's time for a king. Just as God has promised, just as Moses said, this is a request that we are allowed and permitted and encouraged to make. Give us this king because we don't want your evil sons. And then Samuel, Samuel's upset. Continuing on, I just want to keep filling this out, and we're going to come back to Samuel uh, in a moment, but in Judges, Judges 17, the whole book of Judges is about Israel's deterioration, their downward spiral into total depravity. And God raises up judges, 12 of them, but every judge is a little bit worse than the one before. And the time that the people return to the Lord shortens in duration. And by the time you get to the end of Samson's career, Israel's in a pitiful state. And the whole point there is 
We need a king because this system of charismatic judges is not working. We need a king who takes seriously the Torah. We need a king who takes seriously Deuteronomy 17. We need a king who will continually, institutionally, direct our eyes back to God. And and this author of the former prophets makes that point four times in the closing chapters. In, in Judges 17, verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Implication, we need a king. Because this, this is not working. It's not going well for us. Chapter 18, 1, in those days there was no king in Israel. And then we get this whole story about a Levite who was supposed to be a priest in God's house, right? Trying to mediate uh, the relationship between a holy God and a sinful people. Instead, that Levite becomes the, the servant of uh, Micah to, to do this pagan demonic worship over a false idol. We see the total corruption of Levitical worship, the undermining of the book of Leviticus. Why? Well, 18.1 says because there's no king in Israel. There is, there's no one to regulate this. There's no one to say, hey, this is wrong. Then you go a little bit further, next chapter, chapter 19, which is, I actually preached on this last year, and it's about the darkest chapter in the form of prophets that you can get. And the whole point is, God's people has become as bad as the Canaanites that they had dispossessed. First, first verse of that chapter that paints that bleak and dismal portrait of Israel in those days when there was no king in Israel. And then the very last verse in the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Was it right or was it wrong for Israel to ask for a king it was right. Just flip to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. Context here, we all know Hannah, and Hannah wanted a child so bad, but God had withheld that child. And this is a motif that we're getting familiar with, right? Whenever you have a barren mother, that's an oxymoron, uh, a mother who can't conceive a child who has no child, then we know that when that mother receives a child, that that's a child of promise. And so what the author of the former prophets is doing is setting us up to think that Samuel is this king. That Hannah is the queen mom. Because she prays for a child and then miraculously God gives her uh, the request of her heart. And then she has this beautiful prayer to God which is uh, a parallel passage to the prayer of Mary, the mother of the one true king over all kings. But look at the last verse of that prayer in verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. I truly believe that Hannah thought that she was the mother of this king. What she said was absolutely true, but it wasn't about her son. 
Her son was the kingmaker. Now, you might say, well, Adam, that's reading into things. How can you say that Hannah thought that? I don't know. You're right. I don't, there's no line that says absolutely that that's what she thought. But that's, if you just go over and read Hannah's life, that looks exactly where this is going, and then go down to verse 19 of this chapter. This is subtle, but if you're, again, if you're in the Hebrew, it would be more clear. And his mother, this is Samuel, because remember Hannah goes and takes Samuel as she promised and gives him to Eli to, to be raised by the high priest of Israel. So again, she's, she's like putting him from, from the time he's weaned in the best university, in the best family, the best chance of success. We, we read Hannah and we think, oh, that's so selfless. Well, kind of, maybe, but she has visiting rights, and more than that, she's setting her son up for the best possible chance at success. And she used to visit him, and then verse 19. His mother used to make for him a little robe and take to him each year when she went into her, uh, up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Now, this is no bathrobe that you put around your kid after you get your kid out of the bath. This, is, uh, this word means royal robe. Every year, oh, little Samuel, you're so cute. Here's a little priestly or a little kingly robe I'll put over your shoulders. Oh, you look like you're just like a little king. So Samuel, every year, gets a new king, king's robe. Now, what does this remind you of? A coat of many colors? Joseph was raised to have high expectations of himself until he was brought down a notch by his brothers. Likewise, little Samuel is raised up in the most powerful family in Israel. He gets a new royal robe every year and he walks around like a little prince king. And then he becomes a judge. The Lord does speak through him and he, he begins to act like a king. And he begins to rule over Israel. And then he has sons of his own. And he says, you can be crown princes. I'm not going to call you a king, but I'll call you. You can have all the th authority and power that I have. And then the elders say, no, we don't want you to be our king. And we don't want your sons. That's how I read this. We could keep reading. 2 Samuel 7, I uh, don't have time to get into it. But there God very clearly promises David an eternal kingdom. Your son's throne will be established forever. That's not God's plan B. That's why he said to Abraham at the very beginning, kings will come from you and your wife princess. This is not a plan B. This is God's plan from the very beginning. And then I do want to read this, the end of the former prophets. I didn't read this last week. But I, the last four verses of, of the former prophets, uh, just flip forward to 2 Kings 25. So remember, in, in the verses previous to this, we see the destruction of Jerusalem. We see the destruction of the temple. We see the crown princes all killed. We see the king Zedekiah. We see his eyes plucked out. But God did something very, very intriguing. Years before the fall of Jerusalem and the temple and the monarchy, he whisked the messianic line out of Jerusalem into Babylon, into exile, a little bit early. 
Jehoiachin was the name of that king. He was in the line of the Messiah from Abraham to Jacob to Judah to David to Jehoiachin to Jesus. So the line of the Messiah is sitting in Babylon when the monarchy is devastated in Jerusalem. And Jehoiachin, the messianic king, is locked away in a dungeon. But now look at how the former prophets ends. Verse 27, in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, sitting in a dungeon for 36 years. This is his 37th year. In the 12th month, so almost 37 full months, on the 27th day, so three days shy. It's very specific, isn't it? Three days shy of 37 years in a dungeon, evil Merodach, the king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. End of the former prophets. What is the author of the former prophets doing there? Why is that the conclusion of the story? Because there's hope. Just as the messianic king the Davidic king, was in exile, in a dungeon for 37 years, but then graciously was sprung from the dungeon and given a place of honor at the king's table, so also the nation will be in Babylon for a time. But then God graciously will use another foreign king, Cyrus, and he will bring these people out of exile, and he's going to restore them to the land. And what the author of the former prophets is saying is God's unconditional promises to Abraham, to Sarah, to Judah, to David have not failed. The Davidic line will rise. The Davidic line was not wiped out in Jerusalem. That was the uncle of the Messianic line. That was Jehoiachin's uncle. God very conveniently tucked the messianic kin away in a dungeon for safekeeping. And there the messianic seed stood protected by God for just the right time. It's exactly what we see in Matthew's Gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is a king. You go down to verse 11. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Jeconiah is the same man as Jehoiachin. What we learn in the former prophets is God desires to put a king over his people. And he puts a king over Israel and he elevates this king not just to be the king of Israel, but the king of the Jews is the king of all nations. And we see the consummation, the fulfillment of that in the virgin conception of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now here is where we want to bring it to present day. 
First things first, why do we spend a whole morning going over whether or not it was a good request or a bad request to ask for a king? Well, I believe two things about that. One, we have to learn how to read the Bible. Pulling a verse anywhere in the Bible for any reason to answer a big theological question is dangerous. Pulling a chapter for any reason to answer a big theological question is very dangerous because you may answer exactly the opposite to what a broader biblical reading would give you. What we, what we saw in 1 Samuel 8 was, huh, it seems like a bad request. But when we just step back, so, oh, well, wait a minute. Samuel is wrong, dead wrong. And it was a good request because God has promised this. He even gave through Moses provision for this and instructions for this. So that's the first thing. Just on a basic, how do you read your Bible? Well, you start in Genesis and you go to Revelation over and over and over again. And, and, and it's never a waste to just learn things so that you can one day answer these big questions. And that's why we do this together too. Don't, don't say, well, I could never know that. I could never have seen that, so I'm not going to try. Well, we do this together. Secondly, back to where we started. Prince Harry, Meghan Markle. They're just a shadow of the real royal family. What we've looked at today is the real deal. And here's where it gets difficult for us because David seems less real to us than Harry and Meghan. We seem to have a greater investment in today's British royal family, the Canadian royal family. We, that, that is just so much easier for us to see how they have a bearing on our life. They have an impact on our life. We can invest ourselves in them. The reality is, though, that they are but a shadow of the real royal family. And the reason that we're so entranced by them is because God has put it in our hearts to be in, 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 entranced by the real royal family, which begins with Abraham and Sarah, goes through Isaac and Jacob to Judah, and all of Judah's line, then through David, up all through the ages, through all these terrible kings, through the former prophets, and Jesus Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we become heirs along with Christ of this, which means you're more a prince and more a princess than Harry and Meghan, apart from Christ, if they're apart from Christ than any prince or princess, let me put it that way, if you're in Christ, that you and me are prince and princesses. And so what the Bible gives us is the backstory of our royal story. And we should be curious and hungry to know a little bit more about that well tell us a little bit more about our story you know how many magazine articles say did you know this about megan's family and did you know this about her history and before this she was that and and we could go all the way back and and learn about all the kings and queens of britain all, all sorts of things but that matters not at all compared to learning about what is the backstory of the true king of the universe our king the third thing is this. Just as the former prophets ended with hope that this Davidic messianic kingdom would be reestablished, we're still living in that hope. And it's already here, but it's not yet fully here. 
Jesus is even now the king of the universe. He is the king of your life. He is the king of this church. But that seems sort of abstract and theoretical and spiritual. And I don't like the way we use spiritual, but that's how we use it, right? That's a spiritual reality. It's not a political reality. It's not true reality. But it is. Because the king is coming back to earth. And he's coming back to reign as king. And we will live forever in a true political system where Jesus is our king. And so the, 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 the kingdom that started in earnest in 1 Samuel 8 is not done. That's the true history that carries forward to this day. And when the Davidic king returns, that kingdom will restore itself and we will live in a real political system. We're not going to live in a communist uh, political system. We're not going to live in a liberal democracy. We're not even going to live in, in a capitalist society. We're going to live in a kingdom with a king. And we all have a role to play in that kingdom. According to how we live our lives today, the king will give us orders and say, I want you to be my duke, my duchess, my representative here, there, and there. And I want you to reign with me. In the fall, why we did this, these sermons over the last couple months is because in the fall, we're going to take a closer look at the rise of this kingdom. We're going to take a look at the rise of David the Father of Jesus, the Christ. So over the summer, if you have time, we'd love for you to just read the former prophets, just to get a sense of them. Uh, at the very least, just start getting into 1 Samuel because we're going to take a close look at 1 Samuel uh, 16 to 2 Samuel 5 starting in September. Let's pray. God, I thank you for uh, your plan a which is that you want to put a king over us because when there is no king over us we're just like israel in the time of the judges uh, we do what is right in our own eyes but we need to be ruled by a benevolent king who loves us we thank you for jesus who is that king i pray that you would help us to see that every other royal family is but a shadow of this one true king I pray that you would give us a real desire to know more about the backstory of our king and our kingdom in our own royal family. In the name of King Jesus, I pray. Amen.